Welcome to the podcast, the destination for insightful discussions and interviews on the appreciation, conservation, and husbandry of reptiles with a focus on turtles and tortoises. Now, let's join our team of turtle nerds. All right. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for joining us on this slightly delayed episode 88 of the podcast. We're super excited to have Daniel Parker joining us tonight. Um, Anthony's in L.A. uh, for work, probably not going to be joining us. Um, Kevin and Chris both had things pop up as well. So you're basically getting a a one man and guest show tonight. So this I think this is the first time we've done this in a long time, folks. Uh, So we'll see how I do. Um, You know, bear with me while I try to watch the chat and do the tech and host all at the same time. Um, So Daniel, super glad to have you here with us today. Uh, Why don't you uh, just introduce yourself a little bit to our audience for those of them who for those who don't uh, aren't familiar with you, Uh, you know, give us a little bit about your background, how you got into turtles, uh, etc. I'm on the podcast, dude. I'm excited. Right? Um, yeah, it's it's a lot of pressure now. We're the only entertainers. We were just talking about playing music, and we were both music majors, so we'll have to put on a good show. Um, no doubt. I I grew up probably like a lot of you, uh, always into animals. You know, I started off with with dinosaurs and sea creatures at a young age, and my dad would always save turtles off of the road. He He always loved animals and uh, he would bring home turtles sometimes that he found crossing the road on his business trips. And we would, we would always let them go. And, but I just got addicted to turtles and um, one turtle that he brought home, like I said, we would always release them. Um, I don't think anybody understood at that time about, you know, translocation of turtles and how that, that wasn't a good idea, but he brought home a chicken turtle. And, uh, you know, we didn't know what it was. I don't remember how old I was. I might have been in like second or third grade or something. But he brought home this chicken turtle and I thought it was awesome. And uh, I looked it up. I found it. I think I had that like golden guide uh, to reptiles and amphibians. I think they had it in there and identified it as a chicken turtle. It was definitely it was definitely that book. And uh a lot of other people said they'd never heard of a chicken turtle. So that was really cool. And we kept it and it, it ate repto men readily from the start. And we had it for years and years. It was named Wilbur. And uh, then I ended up getting a, uh, an ornate box turtle at a pet store. I, I remember just like, I, I got obsessed with box turtles and I had this box turtle for years and years. It was named Pogo. And, uh, so I started off, uh, I caught a little uh, common musk turtle stink pot down at the lake near our house. It was like the size of a, you know, a little beetle. And I put it in my palm and it bit me. And I didn't even know that a tiny turtle like that would bite. I'd never even thought about turtles biting. But uh, I, I kept that one too and also had it for just years and years. Um, so uh, I was addicted to turtles when I was in fourth grade, all of a sudden we were moving out of the country and I suddenly got obsessed with snakes. And so I started with turtles and really got into snakes. 
so I stayed into snakes and turtles uh, for the rest of my life. And a lot of people know me as my company's name that I started probably 20 years ago is Sunshine Serpents. And I breed uh, mostly rat snakes and king snakes, but I've always kept and bred turtles. And I've had the opportunity to work with them now on, in the wild a lot on field projects. So uh, probably above all else anymore, I'm a field herper and conservationist. And I do keep stuff, but conservation is really my my main focus. It's what I care about the most. And I think we're at a really critical situation in the world today. We're in a mass extinction. And we have to consider what conservation solutions are going to work for the upcoming century. Because uh, obviously we haven't we haven't done a good job with a lot of things. And uh, I think a lot of the old ways of uh conservation or attempted conservation as far as protecting species and banning them and not allowing people to keep them have been counterproductive uh in a lot of ways and uh we see it with a lot of species before our captive breeding programs even attempted uh we're down to critical levels where there are only a few populations left or or almost none left and I don't think that we should wait that long. A lot of our, our wildlife is going to be threatened by all kinds of factors, uh, whether it's development. I mean, here in Florida, we're just losing hundreds of thousands of acres of wildland all the time to developments. So there's going to be habitat loss, sea level rise. We're already seeing it. Uh, climate change, the weather's changing, and we already know that's affecting many species. And uh, so the animals don't have anywhere left to live. So I want to see them forever in the wild, but it, it seems almost hopeless with some species. So I still believe that we should want captive populations as a backup. Uh, you can call them assurance colonies or whatever else, but I'd like to see these animals continue to live somewhere, if not the wild, at least in captivity. Yeah, you know, I, ideally both, right? Um, and, I, you know, I think one of the things that, well, I, I know I believe it and we believe it as an organization as well is uh, people being able to engage with animals in captivity also helps them develop a greater appreciation for a species or a group of animals, which uh, creates an emotional connection that helps them want to help do something for the wild uh, specimens of said animal as well. So I think it's um, it's really huge that we not only work hard to save the wild environments, the wild populations, but do what we can to allow you know keeping of captive animals and find ways to um, minimize take from the from the wild at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. I I mean I still I believe that that uh, some option of, of uh, keeping pets or exposure to native species is important. I, I talked to, uh, in the last couple of days, I've talked to uh, Dr. Whit Gibbons and uh, Dirk Stevenson and, and, and both the conversations we talked about how their interest started with catching, catching stuff as a kid. You know, you caught an animal yeah. as a pet, you kept it. Um, I mean, that can't always be encouraged, but that is how a lot of us started out doing it. 
Um, so I think that kids should have an opportunity to see animals up close and, and hold them and, and really get close to them because people care about what they can touch and feel and see up close. And I, I really worry with some uh, conservationists that they get so wrapped up in the protection of animals that they don't want anybody to have contact with them. And I think we get to a really scary place with that where people stop caring if <coughs> they don't know that something exists. So no, no doubt, no doubt. Yeah, you know, that that basically leads us right into the, the heart of, of our conversation that we've planned for tonight is um, to talk about laws. Um, they're, they're necessary to help conservation and to protect animals. But there, there's a line, too, where um, you also then maybe hurt conservation and or preservation if a law goes too far or – you know, anything else like that. There's, and, and you have a unique perspective as both a biologist and a captive keeper that um, enables you to see both sides effectively. And, you know, I know there's a lot of people who, you know, they, they call for, you know, common sense laws. And I, I think, um, I, I think if it were all common sense, it'd be a lot easier to make happen. So we don't really want common sense laws. We want stuff that's been well thought and well planned and recognize how it impacts, you know, everything from the wild turtle to the captive turtle, to the outreach, to the appreciation, uh, the conservation, the preservation, etc. And I think it takes time to get there. And it takes listening to different voices as opposed to just assuming you've got the common sense because the common sense really involves a you know, when we think of common sense, oftentimes it just comes from one individual's perspective, right? That's my common sense. It makes sense to, you know, one person based on the perspective you're coming from or the goal that you've set out. Like, so common sense isn't always the best thing. Yeah, it's common sense. We don't want you to take anything or whatever, but, um, you know, there's always, there always needs to be more nuance to that. Absolutely. And I think there's a lot of misunderstanding between groups, uh, we obviously have a lot of people who are reptile enthusiasts these days, whether they're biologists or field herpers or keepers, and those groups don't always communicate with each other. So you tend to form images of people in your head that you don't have contact with. And one thing I've noticed with a lot of the uh, very kind of protectionist biologists that are passionate about conservation, but they know nothing about uh, reptile keepers, uh, or, or the captive reptile trade, um, they tend to come to conclusions that aren't always correct. It's kind of based on prejudice and ideology, and they don't have the experience of seeing it up close to know what's really going on. And, uh, I was talking to a biologist, biologist the other day, and, uh, he was very sympathetic to the plight of reptile keepers. And he was saying, yeah, I try to tell a lot of these guys not to lump all of these people together because I hear every time there's, say, a big bust of a turtle poacher or something, um, in the some of the scientists' minds or the animal rights activists' minds, well, that's the same people that are breeding turtles. And uh, I know a lot of 
big turtle breeders here in Florida, they're producing thousands or even hundreds of thousands of turtles per year. They don't really have time to be out there poaching turtles because they're so involved in their captive facilities and taking care of their own turtles. They're, that's their business. That's how they support their family. So I don't think that the breeders tend to be the same people as the poachers. And uh, so you have to be careful, careful of lumping people together. And we've seen that at our, our Florida Fish and Wildlife Commission meetings also. Uh, sometimes they'll say, well, you know, you reptile keepers have abused these privileges in the past. Well, the people who are showing up there to speak at the meetings have not been the ones who have been abusing their privileges or their freedoms. They're the ones usually that are doing things the right way, but they're being lumped together with uh with people who've broken the law or, or done bad things. Right. And uh, unfortunately, that has implications that affect all of us. Uh, for instance, uh, at our last FWC commission meeting, the, uh, the FWC chairman, Rodney Barreto, said, well, we just don't want another situation like what we have uh, with tegus and iguanas and pythons or something like that. And at me as a breeder of almost all native species to Florida, corn snakes, king snakes, spotted turtles, uh, I, th all the things that involve those folks are hardly applicable to me. Uh, but at the same time, the rules are, are uh, impacting all of us. So uh, I can discuss a little later some of the rules that are that are happening that that uh are kind of being imposed in florida but i guess first i'll talk a little about the uh proposal for captive breeding of diamondback terrapins in florida if that's all right you think we should yeah. go there yeah that's you know that's where i where i was going to head next is is to talk about um the the proposed restrictions um by uh, you know f the the florida wildlife commission as well as then your proposal um and you know talk just about that kind of that legal situation where things could be changing yeah well so what's happened recently uh Terrapins have, have been a big issue, diamondback terrapins. And uh, some of the turtle biologists uh, talked to the Wildlife Commission and said, we want to see diamondback terrapins protected. They're dying in crab traps. People are taking them out of the wild. And uh, we want to see them protected. So FWC says, okay, we're going to... Uh, implement a program that requires bycatch reduction devices on crab traps. So it's, it's a, basically a, it can be a plastic ring that's installed at the mouth of a crab trap, or some people just shape the mouth of the funnel of a crab trap to a certain size that prevents turtles, uh, particularly diamondback terrapins from going in and, and drowning. Um, well, the commercial crabbers vehemently opposed this restriction, and they said this this is going to cost a lot. It's going to help make us lose our our biggest crabs, which are big money makers for us. So they were pretty upset about this, and uh, that was one of the things FWC wanted to do. The other thing was ban terrapins 
from being taken out of the wild or kept in captivity. So the what the way the regulations were in Florida for a long time, I think since the 80s, the terrapins were on a short list of turtle species that you could only keep two per person. So you could have two diamondback terrapins, you could keep two uh, box turtles, which specifically it says Eastern box turtles, or it said Eastern box turtles for many years. And uh, you could only keep two loggerhead musk turtles and also two barber's map or scambia maps. Now, over time, they've changed some of those. All map turtles are, uh, you are protected from take out of the wild. And uh, recently, what they did was ban the take of terrapins, but not only the take of terrapins, but keeping terrapins as pets. Well, there were a lot of people who had terrapins as pets that were like, well, we should still be able to keep our pets. So they made a provision that you could get a permit and you would have to register your animals. You'd have to send in photos and document the animals right. that you have. And those animals must be made available to FWC law enforcement to inspect at any time. Um, a lot of pet keepers were like, well, we're not going to do this. We're not going to let law enforcement into our houses. It's kind of an imposition for a yeah. typical pet keeper to have to register their, their family pets and let law enforcement in. So some people just decided not to participate. People just have said, well, we're going to keep our terrapins anyway. Other people moved their terrapins to other people. Some of them moved them out of state. Um, and in the end, I would say only about maybe a quarter to a third of the people that I've talked to who had terrapins actually applied for the permit. So uh, that's kind of where, where we're at right now with the keeping side. Um, so FWC ended up implementing the BRD requirement on crab traps only for recreational crabbers which is probably about a third of the traps out there. So two thirds are probably commercial crab, crab traps, and they are, uh, they are still able to operate without BRDs. Now FWC says they're going to study this problem further. So other updates to that could be coming down the pike, but there have been multiple photos taken of crab uh, terrapins drown in crab traps so we know it's a problem we hope that the the commercial or the uh, recreational trap requirement will at least address the problem of uh ghost traps traps that are just kind of set out and left which tend to catch turtles and turtle yeah. after turtle forever and i think there was a case where even 90 turtles or more uh terrapins in georgia were drowned in one trap. Uh, so really horrific. But we there are tons of horrible photos out there from Jamaica Bay in New York, and we've seen them from Georgia, and also uh, Northeast Florida and the Florida Panhandle. There are photos of turtles or drown in crab traps, terrapins specifically. Yeah. So we, we know that's an issue. Uh, it's possible that terrapins have even been ex extirpated in certain areas uh, because of crab trapping. So perhaps if the BRD were required in all areas, ter terrapins would have a chance to reinvade those areas and yeah. repopulate. Yeah. 
Is uh, Florida one of the few places that those are not required at all times, basically? Uh, I'm not sure exactly which states require them and which don't. I know that a lot of the states do, but I don't know exactly yeah. which ones do okay. and don't. So I, I, I don't think all of them do. Um, but Florida being on board with that would be a really big deal. Uh, yeah, our, sure. our executive director of FWC, Eric Sutton, is also the, the uh, president of the Southeastern Association of Wildlife Agencies. So all of these like wildlife commissions or DNRs from different states uh, kind of get together and and work together on laws. And they're really trying to kind of sync up state laws right now. And in some cases, it's pretty scary for people who keep reptiles. Right, um, no doubt. And and also our our uh, uh, assistant executive or executive director Thomas Eason is the uh, Herp Laws coordinator for that organization. So what happens in Florida definitely has a uh, a chance of affecting at least the rest of the Southeast, but probably all around the country. And as most of you probably know, we have probably the biggest reptile keeping community of, of any state, uh, definitely a center of the reptile business. Uh, it's at least a $200 million industry here. So it, it does affect a lot of people, the economics uh, of, right. of our reptile laws. So I'll talk a little bit more about the the Terrapin program and, and how we, we got to that. Uh, I think it was yeah, around please. 2014. Um, I contacted Dr. Brooke Talley, who was at that time the reptile and amphibian coordinator for FWC. And I said, look, we've, we've got an issue here. Turtles are being poached out of the wild. Uh, the values are very high in the trade and it's especially species that occur in Florida. So we're seeing it with Florida box turtle, the ornate diamondback terrapin, loggerhead musk turtle. All of these turtles were kind of spiking in value. And part of that was due, at least with some of the species, to there never being really enough in captive breeding collections to supply the demand, especially overseas. So tons of turtles, we all know about tons of turtles being exported, either legally or smuggled to Asia, especially uh, a lot of them going into Hong Kong, into China, sometimes into Japan, uh, sometimes into Singapore, uh, the Taiwan. So people all over the world like to keep turtles. It's not just for food. Everybody thinks that all of the Asian turtle trade is for eating turtles, but it's really not. Uh, they're keeping turtles as pets. And especially in China, a fancy turtle, an expensive turtle is, is a status symbol. So yeah. if you're a person of status in China and somebody walks in and you have an ornate diamondback terrapin uh, in a beautiful enclosure in the foyer of your house, you know, they may say, oh, very nice turtle, you know, ornate diamondback terrapin. And that's a, a status symbol. So there is a high demand for these turtles. 
And not we know that not all of those turtles, in fact, probably most in the case of, of our terrapins, at least our Florida subspecies, are not going over legally. Uh, there have been instances of uh, ornate diamondback terrapins posted on social media with barnacles on their shells. Well, we know those aren't captive bred turtles. They don't grow barnacles in captivity. So I, I told Dr. Talley, this is what I'm observing. Florida turtle breeders have not been allowed to breed these species. We have some of the best breeders in the world. We should be able to work with our native species. We love our native species. We're proud of them. And we believe this would have a conservation benefit of helping to supply this trade, which is largely illicit in some cases. Let's supply it with legal animals that are captive bred, legally produced, and even legally exported. They could be legally exported uh, under CITES. And uh, so the, she, uh, I remember, called me back. I was, I was doing a gopher tortoise survey a gopher tortoise and indigo survey. I was working out in the field and I saw she was calling me back. So I was excited about that. I talked to her. Uh, she told me she was going to add this, add me to this committee of turtle breeders uh, who had been asking for the same thing, kind of independently of me. I didn't even know that some of the other turtle breeders were asking for some of the same things that I was. So they added me to this committee and we met with commission staff in, in Tallahassee, Florida's capital, and they kind of listened to us, but that's almost as far as it went. They asked us to do a, a price analysis to show that what we were claiming with the prices uh, were true. <coughs> and what I came up with, uh, and this is just on uh, the terrapin species that were native to Florida. I did it for all of these restricted turtle species. But in, in 2015, what I found was the average price of a Carolina diamondback terrapin was $213, Mississippi terrapin, $228, Florida East Coast terrapin, $425, ornate terrapin, $1,420. And I didn't see any listings of for mangrove terrapins, but there were rumors floating around, which has since been confirmed that they were selling for anywhere from $5,000 to $10,000. So when you have that high of a value on an animal, it doesn't matter what the legality is. Somebody is going to try to take it, poach it, if there aren't legal animals available to supply that demand, uh, somebody's going to try to get a hold of them and get them to the people who are going to pay big bucks for them. Uh, yeah. So do we want poachers to be filling that demand with wild turtles, often wild adult turtles, which we know are the most valuable uh, members of the population? And a, an adult turtle is a miracle. A 90% over 90% of nests are eaten by predators and even those hatchlings lucky enough to hatch 90% of those are eaten by predators or otherwise die after hatching so it's a very perilous life for a, a, a turtle egg or a hatchling baby turtle and most of them don't make it so anytime you see an adult turtle in the wild that's a valuable member of that population 
And we need to keep those animals out there breeding because it's really a numbers game. This female might not be reproducing a replacement for herself in the population every year. She probably won't. Most of her nests are going to be are going to be eaten and her babies are going to be eaten. So we really need to keep those long lived animals out there and breeding. And that's that's part of our argument. So we were asking to be allowed to breed these in captivity, supply the trade. And yes, this would be an economic benefit to turtle breeders in Florida, but it would also be uh, supplying the trade. So we have breeders, multiple breeders that are producing up upwards of 5,000 turtles per year. We have one turtle farm in Florida that works with all, many, many species from very rare to quite common, but you know, naturally colored turtles and morphs, but they're producing around 500,000 turtles per year. They're spending $200,000 a year just on turtle feed uh, from what I've, what I've heard. So this is a serious, serious effort that could be put in if we were allowed to work with these turtles. So at that time, they didn't, uh, they didn't really seriously consider our proposal. And uh, since then, we've had an opportunity to observe what the market has done in, in the years since then. Uh, now, in 2009, all turtles in Florida were protected from commercial collection. You weren't supposed to take a wild turtle and sell it. Well, at that time, uh, or uh, shortly after that, the Florida snapping turtle experienced a spike in prices. And we were seeing some of the wholesalers pay $35 a pound for Florida snapping turtles. And uh, we know that they were being sold for $65 a pound. So just do the math in your head of what a 10 or 20 pound Florida snapper is worth at that point. And so we, that painted a target on those turtles backs. So just limiting the supply and the perception that these turtles were no longer available helped create a price spike. Now we know there was a demand for those turtles also because the Chinese uh, thought that they reproduced better than common snappers in uh, parts of China that were really hot in Southern parts of China, especially on turtle farms. So they wanted these Florida snapping turtles because they apparently bred better on these hot turtle farms. So just recently, a, uh, a Hong Kong turtle researcher, uh, I think I'm gonna pronounce this wrong, I apologize if you're watching, uh, Dr. Yik Hai Sung, uh, he presented a paper to American scientists where he documented the price, or documented the ornate terrapin as the most valuable turtle imported into Hong Kong with a mean price of $2,608 and a maximum price of $4,103. So I don't know how long his data set is for that, but you can obviously see from the time that I did my price analysis to what he's seeing, the price has only gone up. And it was interesting, the top four turtles in value from his study of or of the top four, Three of them were Florida turtles, uh, endemic or nearly endemic Florida turtles. And those included the Florida box turtle, 
and the Florida snapping turtle. And the only one of those turtles that wasn't from Florida was the wood turtle. So the, uh, the Florida box turtle, the average price or the mean price he documented going into Hong Kong was $1,007. The maximum price was $4,103 for Florida box turtle. The Florida snapping turtle, the mean price was $937 and the maximum price was $12,821. So we can see what's happening here economically. Uh, not enough supply, demand is only increasing, and what's going to happen? Prices are going to go up. There's going to be incentive for poachers to go and get these turtles. Because they're in Florida, uh, and we've had these restrictions on ornate terrapins and Florida box turtles, especially for, for many years, uh, there's never been adequate supply. But with terrapins, one thing that we're able to do is breed them very effectively in captivity if we if we're allowed to so we know that terrapins really breeding in captivity isn't that much different from a slider it's a it's an easy turtle to keep they can produce three sometimes as many as five clutches per year and i think in our proposal i said something like eight to 13 eggs but the other day i was talking to dr uh or I, I was talking to Jordan Gray from the TSA, and he said that a uh, nest of northern diamondback terrapins was documented with 29 eggs. So these are fecund turtles. My my wife makes fun of me when I say fecundity, but uh, it, <laughs> these are fecund turtles. They're very productive turtles. And there is a possibility of really cranking these things out and supplying that market. And so the most commonly available terrapin in captivity is a northern diamondback terrapin. And obviously they have a, a larger range than most of the species. And so people have worked with them in captivity for longer. There's a turtle farm in Maryland, a single farm that's producing over 10,000 terrapins a year, captive bred terrapins, and most of them are being exported legally to China with CITES permits. So the IUCN Turtle Specialist Committee has cited that as a, a, uh, an example of how the CITES process is working and that's one of their justifications for extending it to all turtles. So we know a lot of people are very concerned about that, all turtles being listed CITES. But it's important to point out that they're saying that this Maryland captive breeding program is an example of how CITES is working. So I've been in contact through this whole process with uh, Rick Stanley. I keep wanting to say Paul Stanley, who's the guitarist of Kiss. I think that I've, <laughs> I, I think that I've said that in a few public settings, and I met Rick Stanley, but he's been really great to work with. He wrote the Terrapin. He's a lawyer, a uh, conservationist, but also he's uh, very supportive of reptile keepers, and he wrote the t Maryland's Terrapin Law around 20 years ago, and got it passed through the legislature. 
So they found that people were collecting adult terrapins. Uh, a lot of times they figured out how to find them while they were hibernating in the winter. And uh, they were taking a lot of adult terrapins and they thought that terrapin populations were just disappearing. So they wanted to protect wild terrapins. And uh, I see somebody laughing about my Paul Stanley comment. Uh, <laughs> but Rick Stanley wanted to protect all the wild terrapins, but they also saw captive breeding as a valid component to this program. So they didn't ban captive breeding in Maryland. And the, the other day we had these webinars with FWC where people could participate and give their comments on our uh, proposal for a captive breeding program for terrapins. And one of the things that FWC brought up in their presentation is that this is not the trend that's happening. Uh, they use Georgia, South Carolina, and Alabama and Virginia of examples that have eliminated all take with no breeding program. And they said, this is the way that states are doing it. This is the trend. But they failed to mention other states that are allowing some captive breeding. So Maryland is an example. Uh, Mississippi allows uh, captive breeding, at least of uh, the subspecies not native to Mississippi. And it has only a tiny sliver of, of coastline. But there are states that are allowing captive breeding of terrapins that, that are range states. So it hasn't completely been eliminated. So I guess I should slow down. I've been talking a lot. Do you have any any questions or comments on what I've been talking about? No, no, you're 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 on a roll. Like you're hitting all these things that we wanted to bring up. Um, you know, Greg uh, <clears throat> brings up a good point here in the chat. Um, you know, there are a lot of people who are in, in captivity are now hybridizing terrapins with a lot of other things to create like designer pets. Um, how do you think this should be handled? It, like. Do you see this as a, hey, this is a good thing to happen in captivity because people will – there are going to be people interested in those animals as opposed to these wild, the, you know, wild-caught animals? Mm -hmm. Or do you think that that puts a negative light on captive breeding, which hurts the chance at, at getting laws that allow captive breeding? Yeah, well, one of the justifications that some of our – or actually when they – when they ban keeping terrapins as pets, uh, one of the points that some of our keepers were making is that they should at least provide an exception for albinos or, or morphs like leucistic. I'm not that familiar with morphs. I like natural colored turtles myself, but I know some yeah. of these are out there. And, uh, but they're also generally unavailable at this point. So because some of our people said they should make this exception for morphs fwc kind of seized on that and said well what if we just did a captive breeding program for morphs and our response to that was like well you should allow the morphs anyway they're not going to impact wild populations one you're not going to have people poaching turtles out of the wild if they allow morphs but really what's going to impact the conservation of these animals is if we're able to breed normal wild type examples because there is a demand for that in the market. So we know a beautiful, pure, ornate diamondback terrapin 
like you see on the the cover of our proposal behind me there uh is is a very highly sought after animal and uh I wonder sometimes about the actual demand for hybrids and integrates. I know sometimes people are doing it to uh, to enhance certain morphs, um, but I think there are there's a lot of demand for pure. Oh, no doubt. Also, and uh, I, you know maybe maybe we should really suggest that people just work with pure subspecies. Uh, FWC recently worked with our Department of Agriculture on a breeding pro or a fish farming program for Florida largemouth bass. So fish farmers said people in other states are farming Florida largemouth bass and they're selling them and they're stocking Florida largemouth bass all over the country because our Florida largemouth bass is a subspecies that gets bigger than uh, the common largemouth bass. So, but FWC was very concerned about uh, bass corrupting the genetics of our wildlife, of our wild populations. Obviously we don't want common largemouth from other states. Right. Their genetics getting into our wild bass and making them smaller or whatever, you know, whatever is gonna happen. We're, we're proud of our big bass in Florida. Uh, even though we don't necessarily manage our water in a way that promotes the health of fish here. But so they worked a program where they would do genetic testing on the fish to verify them as pure. Um, we haven't really gotten that deep into the discussion. I think it's a valid point. I personally have no interest in in intergrades or hybrids or anything like that. I know some of it happens out there. But, you know, another thing we should all con also consider is that if there's a demand for, for those turtles, uh, it might still be helping fill the demand. So right. I, think, I think that the turtles that are really going to impact the conservation side of things are these turtles that are replacing what people can get out of the wild. So if people want a pure ornate terrapin or a mangrove terrapin, uh, I don't think they're going to want it to be corrupted by anything else. Uh, so the people who might want a wild one are also going to want a captive bred pure one. So uh, I would definitely just encourage people to, to breed these subspecies pure. Right. I, well, I think it wasn't just about the subspecies. It was like, uh, so like a really common thing that I've been seeing lately is like map turtle cross with terrapin. Um, like for instance, um, that's been yeah. one that's been, you well, know, weaving about. In, in that case, and I know I've seen, I've seen some of those. I mean, in that case, I don't even think those turtles would be uh, illegal under Florida law currently. Right. So this wouldn't be, this wouldn't really be any change. I think people... Or, I, or I'm not sure it's specifically right. addressed right. by regulation, but they're not the, they're not specifically banned for sure. Right. My my question was more like, do people breeding those kinds of things make a make the agency like less likely to go forward with captive breeding programs because they have some concern with those hybrids messing up something else along the yeah. way? Yeah. I. I've heard a little bit of concern, um, but 
again, I, I don't think like a hybrid's even, it's not really addressed by our program because a hybrid I think is already legal in Florida. So if they're concerned with that, um, it's a, it's kind of a different issue. So somebody, I believe, could keep a hybrid map turtle right, right now as, right. as the law is. Okay. Um, yeah, so I was just kind of thinking, like, would they be worried about people releasing those in with the regular ones if they were all, you know, but anyway. Yeah, well, one thing, I mean, I, it's kind of anybody's guess what a hybrid you know turtles gonna do in the wild but yeah with a terrapin you know one of our selling points with that that wick gibbons uh commented on uh is that this is a specialized turtle in the wild that requires salt water or brackish water environments so i i wouldn't expect it to be and i know some people have expressed concern with even any wild terrapins being released and possibly corrupting wild terrapin populations, maybe of a different subspecies or just a different population. But it's going to have to be a pretty special circumstance for that to even happen because it's a saltwater turtle. I would think whoever's releasing it or is having it escape is going to have to get it into salt water that's appropriate habitat. So, uh, somebody who's living on a freshwater lake or river or something it's probably not going to survive just just biologically it's probably not going to happen um i can give you the the quote from wit gibbons in his support of our breeding proposal he said dbt's are native species that would not be invasive even if they were released specific brackish water habitat requirements assure that individuals would not readily invade freshwater habitats. So it's they pose very little risk as an invasive species, certainly. And of course, with all the invasive species and non-native species issues we have in Florida, shouldn't we be embracing pe people and, and reptiles that don't have a potential of being invasive? Uh, it's it seems like the trend has been they're going to ban it if it's exotic or they're going to ban it because it's native like they're going to get it get us from both ways so yeah if if they should let us breed native species i think there's a big case to be made i've, I've talked to people i was in georgia for the ihs conference in atlanta the international herpetological symposium if you're not familiar with that and I, I gave a presentation on diamondback terrapins in Florida, but I was discussing Georgia's laws with, with various people. And uh, if you're familiar with Georgia's laws, you know that all non-venomous snakes are protected in Georgia. There's no take. You're not allowed to keep them in captivity. So people are not allowed to keep species that are even common in Georgia, like corn snakes, king snakes, species that are very common pets but they're illegal in Georgia and Georgia DNR has actually arrested people and thrown them in jail over possessing corn snakes or rat snakes or king snakes. So it's, it's pretty draconian. Uh, but why shouldn't Georgia want people to keep native snakes when they're also concerned about non-native species? I mean, you're talking about a person that might keep something that could be invasive 
and that could be replaced as an alternate with something native that's definitely not a threat to to become invasive because it already lives in Georgia. Um, so are there other potential changes to Florida reptile laws that you're kind of keeping your eye on, or is this kind of the, the main ball right now? Not, not at all. Um, Florida is a, uh, is a firestorm right now with reptile keepers. Um, we know that we know that there it's been well publicized that there are invasive species in florida they've made national news and uh in 2009 i believe i could be wrong either 2008 or 2009 uh the conditional species program was created to address some of these issues so at that time burmese pythons were big in the news we know burmese pythons have been popping up in the wild in south florida since at least 1992 and that's when hurricane andrew happened and we know that hurricane andrew destroyed several uh captive animal facilities dealerships so that could have been a potential point of introduction of maybe a, a large number of snakes at that time we don't know for sure but so that was that became a big issue it reached a boiling point as people were finding more and more pythons in the wild and FWC said, we have to do something about this. So Reptile Keepers actually worked with FWC to create what was called the Conditional Species Program, or CSP. And this program imposed strict caging requirements. It uh, required animals to be microchipped. So if somebody's python got out, they could identify where it came from. And... Uh, it seemed to be working. They're actually, I don't know if we, any releases or escapes of pythons have been documented since this program was, was implemented. Uh, certainly not from permitted facilities. So it seemed to be working. And that was an example where FWC worked with reptile keepers. They came up with a solution that didn't completely ban things. They allowed people who were responsible and could meet the requirements to continue keeping these animals. But what the effect that it had was it largely eliminated Burmese pythons as a common pet species in Florida. So you didn't have as many people keeping them. So at the time that passed and reptile keepers actually foresaw the problem coming with tegus and actually asked FWC to look at adding tegus to the conditional species program. And the FWC commissioner's response was, ah, we're tired of dealing with reptiles. We just, we just, we're done with you guys right now. We've, we've done enough. So they just kind of ignored it. So fast forward to now, tegus, very popular pet species, also iguanas, very popular pets, commonly kept in captivity. Um, iguanas have been established in the wild for probably 75 years, at least in Florida. They're not cold tolerant. So when we have big freezes, lots of iguanas die. So they're pretty much restricted to South Florida. So they also live mostly in disturbed habitats. 
I didn't think the iguanas were really a major invasive species problem. Uh, a lot of people seem to like them in South Florida. I remember I, I used to catch iguanas sometimes, and a lot of people were protective of their, their iguanas. And you would, iguanas tend to live around people's houses and in canal banks and cities. When you got into the native habitats, you didn't have a very high density of iguanas. It, it seemed like it was either too cold or they were susceptible to predators. They really did better in these totally artificial environments. And some people were protective of the iguanas and they liked them. But FWC actually launched a negative PR campaign against iguanas and kind of demonized them for several years. And that was before we knew anything about this prohibited species program that they were planning on implementing. So they they ended up adding iguanas and tegus and some other snake species uh, to this new prohibited species program, which was much more uh, draconian than the conditional species program. And Burmese pythons also went from the conditional program to the prohibited list. So almost overnight, you had iguanas and tegus go from being totally unregulated popular pets to being prohibited and the they told people well, we're not taking away your pets we're uh we're giving you the opportunity to keep your pets but they're going to have to be registered and microchipped and you're going to have to adhere to strict cage standards what ended up happening was the cage standards that they created for iguanas and tegus were literally more stringent than what's required for big cats like it's easier to build a tiger enclosure than an iguana enclosure <laughs> right now and a lot of people just couldn't comply with this especially and they also gave them a certain deadline to meet people were having trouble some people had to hire contractors get building permits to even build these because if you had an outdoor enclosure it was required to be concrete block it had to have a drain in it. Um, we had a complaint where this public park was saying that FWC's caging requirements for their iguanas conflicted with the FEMA requirements uh, required for like hurricane safety and storm surge. So the, there is a conflict in and what do you do? Do you fall? You couldn't have a drain hole in the side, which is what they were have, supposed to do to allow the passage of stormwater through the through the cage, through the enclosure. Uh, that's what was required by FEMA. But FWC said that made the, the cage illegal. So they actually, FWC threatened to confiscate and euthanize the lizards that were kind of animal ambassadors at this public park in South Florida and they were used for invasive species education. And they were eventually, after they got a lot of media attention for their story, uh, FWC extended the deadline. But it was really only because it was a news story that blew up because the people from, from, in, from the park and from the area were saying FWC is threatening to euthanize these lizards. So... Reptile keepers don't believe that there should be no regulation, but you have to understand that when you're confiscating animals, when you're asking them to forfeit 
animals that they consider to be members of their family. And we know as reptile keepers, we love our animals just as much as people love their dogs and cats. And a lot of people don't understand that, that we have an attachment to these animals in that same way. So when you do things like that, especially when it's picked up by the media and it blows up because people are horrified, they're outraged, you're going to have to expect a backlash. And that's what's happened in Florida. Uh, Not only that, they've made it nearly impossible for collectors to collect and sell iguanas and tegus out of the wild and get them out of the state. So what's happening now, they impose these really stringent uh, requirements that that make you uh, GPS the animals wherever they're found and pit tag all the animals collected out of the wild. Well, the problem is, is that most of the demand is for babies and you can't really pit tag a baby lizard. So what are you supposed to do? They only permitted, I think there are only six permittees at this point that are even allowed to export tegus or iguanas out of the state. So the the effect of all this is that instead of being taken out of the wild, these non-native animals are staying out in the wild and breeding them because nobody's able to do anything about it. So that's that's another effect that it's having. And we have businesses in Florida that have lost out on literally millions of dollars from not being able to sell iguanas and tegus out of state and some of them were also breeding albinos and morph iguanas and tegus which were probably no threat of becoming invasive uh and now we know that fwc is continuing to push other rules uh they passed a rule just a a little over a month ago that says that if you lose your license as a as an animal keeper with FWC, you will be forced to forfeit your animals. And what we found out that means not just animals that you have to per, have a permit to possess, like anything considered dangerous, uh, venomous. We call those class one or class two animals. This also applies to just common harmless animals that you don't have to have a permit to possess. So by having an FWC license, you're literally putting yourself at risk of having to forfeit your animals if you lose your license. Well, what can you lose your license for? You can lose it for any violation. And FWC confirmed at the last meeting that they even consider a warning to be a violation. So by the way, the law is written you could get a warning there. They have tons of rules. They have just pages and pages of rules upon rules. And they're almost impossible for a normal person to understand or follow without the help of an attorney. In fact, their inspectors don't understand their own rules a lot of the time. But if you violate one of these rules and even get a warning, that could be the cause of you losing your license and possibly as a result, losing your animals. So that got everybody up in arms. And at our last FWC meeting, I know like over a hundred people showed up. The room was packed. I'd never seen so many people at an FWC meeting and there was standing room only. The room got hot because there were so many people in it. And it was a very passionate response from reptile keepers. And some of the commissioners didn't seem to understand, well, we're not 
we're not trying to take away your animals. They're not really going to do this. But the framework was all in the law there. And people have already seen animals be taken away and be confiscated. So the keepers have personal experience with this. So this isn't something that's just being made up. That's some fanciful uh, conspiracy theory. It's something that we've watched happen. So they have to understand why people are so passionate about this. There's another rule that could be voted on at the next commission meeting coming up in July. It's called the injury and escapes rule. And it says that if you are injured by one of your animals possessed with your captive, uh, captive wildlife license, if it's an, uh, a, uh, an injury that requires something beyond normal first aid, so say a hospital visit or something, you have to report that injury to FWC. If you don't report the injury, that's a violation. But if that injury is considered a result of negligence, that can also be a violation. So in effect, what they're requiring you to do is report yourself for something that can be a violation, which is a violation of the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution, which says that we have the right to not incriminate ourselves, to not testify against ourselves. It's also a violation of right to privacy, which is found in the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. You, you Not to not mention be, HIPAA laws there with injuries, medical. Yes, yeah, so you should not be compelled to reveal your medical history. So when they're saying an injury that requires something beyond medic, uh, basic first aid, that should be protected uh, as your medical history, because that probably means you're making a trip to the hospital or something. Uh, the escape rule is similar. If you have an escape, you're required to report that to FWC. But this isn't just for like non-native or dangerous animals. This is for anything. So let's just say you have a baby corn snake that pops a lid on a deli cup. That is a an escape that would be required to re, be reported to FWC, even though that's a native species. If you don't report it, that's a violation. If the escape is considered negligent, that can also be a violation. So once again, you're being required to provide testimony against yourself. So that's up for a vote in the next commission meeting, unless something changes. So they just continue to pound these rules one after another. And then the, the latest thing that we're dealing with is the potential of a uh, white list or a safe list. So what, what a white list is, and FWC is using the term safe list, but it means the same thing. It means that they're going to create a list of what you're allowed to have and anything else will be banned. So they can say, you can have this, this, and this. And if the animals you work with don't make the list, then you, you might be out of luck. So this is kind of scarier in a way than the prohibited list because they're going to force us to prove, and actually we're going to have to pay for the scientific research to pr prove that animals are safe, that they don't have invasive potential. Now, FWC staff has told us that this is being considered, this safe list. They haven't said it's definitely happening, but
but the commissioners have told them to consider it. And we have other people in the government that are telling us that it's happening. So uh, we actually have had some contact with FWC staff who accused uh, reptile keepers of spreading misinformation, uh, which was pretty offensive because we've we have direct quotes. We're not making this this safe list or whitelist stuff up. It was specifically referenced by Melissa Tucker of FWC at the last tag committee, which this is a uh, technical. I'm going to they changed it. A technical assistance group is what the tag committee is. And basically they've appointed people who they uh, believe are stakeholders. So this is the technical advisory group or, or assistance group for non-native species. And actually the reptile industry, I think only has two people on there, uh, Phil Goss and Eugene Bissett, and they're, they're highly outnumbered on the committee. But we know from what they said at the tag committee meeting that they are considering the possibility of a safe list. Now, we recently got a document that is uh, a list of species that they are going to be evaluating. Now, they're saying this is not the safe list, but we know these are being evaluated for their invasive potential. And it's pages of uh, trying to hold it up here, but it's pages. I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but here's some species that are being evaluated for their invasive potential, which is what they've already done with Burmese pythons and iguanas and tegus before banning them. Uh, African spurthite tortoise, sulcata, matamata, ball python, blood python, carpet python, rainbow boa, boa constrictor, all varanus monitor lizards, all agama caiman lizards, clawed frogs. So that's just a few off of the list. Now, this hasn't been widely publicized yet, but sulcata is a pretty big one, right? Ball python, huge. So when we're talking about those species being evaluated for their invasive potential, you know the gears in reptile keepers' heads are turning. They've banned this species and this species and this species. So it... It's not conspiracy theory. It's not misinformation to believe that they're considering these species next because they're on a list. We know they're being evaluated and it's a scary proposition. Those species are a very high percentage of the entire reptile trade and, and, and reptile community. So it's, it's a really big deal for sure. You have any questions? On any of that, um, uh, I nothing there from our audience. So um, let's shift a little bit. Then uh, we've only got about 15, 20 minutes left. Uh, um, well, let let's, actually while we're talking uh, about state, before we yeah. expand, I'd like to uh, talk to you about something really quick. So the animal uh, keepers in Florida have gotten together. And they're supporting a petition in Florida, um, and it's asking the governor to uh, put uh, put pressure on FWC to reconsider all of these uh, 
all of these kind of draconian regulations that are impacting uh, all animal keepers. And this isn't just reptile keepers. This is fish keepers. That list has fish on it. There are mammals. Uh, there are invertebrates. So all of these folks, birds, all have to be concerned because these regulations affect all of them. So it, it's a what's been done is a change.org petition. And it's to ask Governor DeSantis to direct FWC to suspend harsh mandates that threaten the livelihoods of uh, animal keepers and the lives of, of their animals. And uh, go to the, I would encourage you to go to the USARC Florida page and you will find links. Just scroll down. Uh, you'll find links to this petition posted, but it kind of looks like this. There's a QR code. A lot of people were signing this at the recent uh, the Repticon Tampa show that was over the weekend. But please look for this change.org petition, but only sign it if you're a Florida resident. We'll and, drop it uh, into the uh, chat there for everybody as well. Oh, excellent. Thank you. Thank you. So that, yeah. that's really important. It's in, in uh, a little over a week, it's gotten 10,000 signatures. If that tells you something about the passion on this issue right now. Um, so while we're paused, while we're paused, now. yeah, while we're paused real quick. Um, so I, I put it in the chat. It's scrolling across the bottom of the screen. It's a bit long to type from that, but uh, it is in the chat, that link. A reminder, the Turtle Room just had our 11th anniversary a couple days ago. So we are also offering uh, a discount on shirts, hats, any kind of apparel on our website. So feel free to use this code to get yourself a discount on some great Turtle Room merchandise. Uh, in the meantime, all right. Excellent. So I gotta get I gotta get one of those hats. I like that. Yeah, so we don't have um, we don't actually have the orange ones on on the website. I don't think, but we have a bunch of other colors of the same hat. But no, if you want an orange right. one, if you want an orange one, let me know and uh, we'll get you an orange one. <clears throat> um, uh, so we've got about 20 minutes left or so, give or take. Um, so let's shift up uh, and, and just hit briefly uh, some things that are kind of on the horizon at the federal and, and even the international levels uh, of potential legal changes, um, pros, cons, etc. Yeah, well, one thing uh, a lot of you have heard about are uh, – issues with the Lacey Act, and it's it's part of the America Competes Act. And what this is, it's actually a technology bill, and it's supposed to help America compete with China uh, in trade and in, in technological advancement and stuff like that. But what has happened is certain politicians um, – Marco Rubio from Florida is one of them, one of our senators, have attached amendments to this bill that allow U.S. Fish and Wildlife uh, new and uh, scary powers under the Lacey Act to, uh, to make changes uh, on, on interstate transport and importation of animals without due process. So they can kind of do this unilaterally. So what's what's included in this is 
a ban on interstate transportation and importation of every species currently listed as injurious, uh, even for species that couldn't survive in the U.S. Um, importations already banned on injurious species listed under the Lacey Act, but this also gives the potential of banning interstate transport again. So right now that's nine species of large constrictor snakes and 201 species of salamanders that are already listed as injurious. Um, but it would also grant an emergency designation that would allow species to be classified as injurious without due process or justification or prior notice. So it just allows U.S. Fish and Wildlife to just kind of do it, uh, list stuff as injurious, which it, it could be a killer, um, especially if it's eliminating interstate transport. So for, for a lot of our businesses, um, a lot of our pets, that's, that's pretty extreme. It also makes it could make it impossible for you to travel with your own pet across state lines if you needed to move or travel or whatever. Uh, it also would allow the creation of a whitelist. And we already kind of described what that would do in Florida, but this is a federal whitelist, which hasn't been written yet, but it would be approved uh, for a, a, a whitelist to be able to be implemented by U.S. Fish and Wildlife and the whitelist would apply to importation, but they could expand that into a ban on interstate transport through the Fish and Wildlife Service rulemaking process. So all this is pretty scary stuff that, that has a real chance of uh, seriously impacting the commerce and just the transport of, of a lot of animals. And we have no idea. It could be any animals. We don't know what they're going to come up. It could be all reptiles. It could just be certain ones. Like I said, they're already, it's been applied to nine species of snakes and salamanders because of the risk for spreading chytrid fungus, but it could be expanded to many, many other species and there's no due process built in. So there's no review process. That's the scariest part of it. So what, where this bill's at, it's in conference committee. So there are two versions of the bill. There's one in the House and one in the Senate. And what happens when they have different versions of a bill? They come together with a committee of senators and Congress people, and they get together and they come up with kind of a compromised version of the bills. So what we need to happen is for those Lacey Act amendments to be eliminated to not be included in the final draft that comes out of the the uh, committee. So I would encourage you, this is a, an issue that USARC, the national organization has worked on. So check out their website. Uh, USARC Florida works very closely with USARC. They're not the same organization, but they're definitely working together all the time. And uh, definitely check out the USARC website and the Facebook page or any of the other social media. So that's what's going on with the with the Lacey Act right now. Awesome. Thank you. Um, and I guess the last big one, and we've already kind of alluded to this, is um, 
there are, you know, organizations that are trying to push for all turtles to be increased uh, or added to sites. Um, not necessarily the TFTSG, which is the IUCN, you know, turtle specialist group, um, but the specialist group will ultimately, you know, have a chance to put some input in there. But um, there are, you know, various nonprofit and other organizations that are kind of advocating to um, to governments to propose that basically every turtle gets added to CITES at least at, at level Appendix 3. Last I saw, the fish, U.S. Fish and Wildlife had not actually determined what they were going to do with such a proposal. Mm-hmm. But everybody got really on high alert right away. And I even had some people saying, look what U.S. Fish and Wildlife is trying to do. Well, no, they didn't actually say they were, they were even backing it. So we, you know, we do need to take a step back with it. But you know, let's uh, you know, hit on this as our final little topic of the evening. Well, yeah, so CITES is the Convention on the International Trade of Endangered Species. A lot of people think it's expanded beyond its original purpose of protecting endangered species because there are many species that aren't endangered, obviously, that are included. Um, They want to monitor red-eared sliders just because of their invasive potential. Obviously, red-eared sliders are, are not in any way endangered. And uh, you can go not only in their uh, non-native range, but if you go to their native range, there are piles and piles of red-eared sliders. So sliders are very successful turtles. Good for the slider. Uh, <laughs> but so that it's kind of be expanded beyond its original purpose. Um, but just because something is... Uh, petitioned or proposed that's somebody else that is suggesting that u.s fish and wildlife uh petition them for listing so u.s fish and wildlife isn't even the determining voice on that it's international it's an international convention so what that is is all the countries that are members get together and they have a they have a uh, a convention i think the next one's coming up in panama and they get together and they they discuss and vote to approve species for CITES. So there are instances, uh, for instance, uh, Australia has petitioned for all the blue-tongued skink species to be added to CITES. Uh, they're concerned with that. Now, most blue-tongued skinks that are available in captivity, Australia has banned export of its animals for, for many, many years. But Australia kind of sees a, a claim to these animals and they want the trade and then stopped. So even though there's not really a demonstrated poaching problem, I don't think with blue tongue skinks, Australia kind of thinks, uh, considers themselves as owners of this native wildlife. And uh, there are other countries who've joined in on that. So it's not just Australia, but so there's a push with the blue tongues. And then there's also a push for all turtles. And this is not U.S. Fish and Wildlife, but this is certain organizations. So it it's not something that's definitely going to happen. I think it is something that we should be concerned with, though. Um, one thing that I, I worry about with some conservationists is they'll say things like, well, we have to do something. Well, what I've seen is sometimes the something that we do 
is damaging. For instance, when you limit captive breeding and you limit legal export, that can actually lead to poaching. Um, with CITES, it creates a, uh, a very burdensome paperwork process. And a lot of people, if they're not able to document a paper trail of their animals going all the way back to when they were in the wild, where they were collected, it can be very hard to get CITES documents to approve your animals to be exported. And we know that exports, actually turtles are about 88% of all reptiles exported. That's according to a, a study done uh, by Ariel Colas, an economist, uh, in a study done for US ARC. So that's, that's huge. And a lot of turtle breeders and turtle farms rely on exports uh, of turtles as their main income, as their main revenue stream. Uh, there are a lot more turtles going out than staying in the United States. So there is a, a very severe economic impact that can happen there. And I think it's unfair to not consider the economic needs of people who have dedicated their lives to legally breeding turtles. They, they have a right to continue with their businesses if, if some kind of damaging uh, impact is not demonstrated. Um, but I also think that the benefits of CITES have not always been clearly demonstrated. Uh, I've observed it myself that animals can sit around for months and months and months waiting for CITES to CITES documents to be approved. And that actually increases the potential for smuggling because it's it's an easier alternative sometime than going through the official process. So it's, it's very bureaucratic. Uh, I think sometimes limiting the when and by implementing burdensome bureaucratic process, you are in effect limiting captive breeding because you're making people not want to do it. You're going to lose lose some of that. There are a lot of people that are breeding rare species and of turtles, especially. And sometimes these turtles are extinct or virtually extinct in the wild. And a lot of these, there are more of them in the United States or Europe than they are in the wild in Asia. Uh, and I, you know, with some things, there may be more of them in Asia now than they are left in the wild in America too. So that can go both ways. But I mean, I've seen uh, flattened musk turtles posted by Asian people on social media. There's been no legal process ever to get flattened musk turtles out, but they still made their way out of the country. And that's a turtle with a very small range. So yeah. th those turtles have never been able to be legally bred uh, up until recently, to my understanding, the Tennessee Aquarium in Chattanooga possessed some of the only legal flattened musk turtles in captivity. And I know the, the TSA was uh, working on getting a hold of some. So that's uh, it's something to consider. Sometimes when you limit trade, you're actually limiting the ability to captive breed. And for the long term, where are we going? We have we're running out of habitat for animals. We're in a mass extinction and. I would rather animals be in the wild than in captivity, but if there's no place left for them to live, if their habitats are swamped by rising seas, 
or their rivers are polluted or destroyed or their habitats bulldoze, which is what's happening with Florida box turtles, especially as far as turtles go in Florida. Uh, you know, what are what are the other options with that? If we if we don't have the value as a society, we don't place a value on those animals enough to keep them in the wild. I would certainly prefer them being kept and bred in captivity and their populations expanded in captivity as an alternative to all extinction. So I, it's not definitely happening, but it is something that we need to pay attention to and and consider. And if that if they are all added to CITES, it would have very serious implications for a lot of turtle breeders. No doubt, no doubt. Um, I think it's probably easier to, slightly easier at least, to get permits to export something that isn't native to the U.S., for instance, if you were lived in the U.S. But, um, yeah. Um, man, that was a lot in a short amount of time, Daniel. Thank you very much. Um, uh, I encourage you all You're to welcome. go back even, and rewatch. I know. Yeah, we did. We didn't even really get everywhere. We didn't we even were get into all get. the fun field herping stuff. No, sorry, it was such a drag, everybody. We wanted to talk about fun <laughs> stories of turtles in the wild. I've tracked box turtles in the wild and field studies, and and had a blast doing that. But we're dealing with a lot of serious issues now. So uh, hopefully we can get together to talk about all that cool wild oh. turtle stuff. Oh, oh no doubt we'll have to we'll have to have you on again sometime when when hopefully some of our other hosts can join us as well because I think it'd be really fun to talk about some of your other experiences as well. A um, lot of heavy stuff. A um, lot easy to miss uh i encourage you to all go back and re-listen as well to certain uh, certain bits of conversation if there was something you felt like you didn't quite get a um, lot of heavy content tonight so anyway uh again really great to have you daniel um, for all of you uh, out there, uh, again, remember that uh, you can uh, get 25% off on apparel at, on our website store briefly, um, uh, basically through Friday. Um, here is Daniel's uh, website address. Uh, if you want to go check out more about him and what he's doing uh, with with. Um, his reptile endeavors, he continues to be a great voice for turtle keepers uh, all throughout the southeast and, and even across the country. Uh, I spoke at IHS recently as well. Um, yeah, do you have any last last thoughts before we go? Yeah, if, if, if you uh, are interested in this terrapin breeding proposal uh, and you'd like to make a public comment, I would encourage you to uh, email comments to freshwater.turtles at myfwc.com, uh, freshwater.turtles at myfwc.com uh, is where that's, you That's can in the comments. Very, very good. So uh, uh, we love all the support we could get. We've gotten support from many scientists and now an economist that think that this would be a good idea and have conservation uh, benefits. So if you have an opinion, I would encourage you to uh, email FWC. Uh, also, if you're in Florida, go sign the, the petition on change.org and you see the, the link to that. So uh, 
we're really working hard to protect our freedoms to work with animals in Florida, all animals from birds to mammals to snakes to turtles to fish, everything. So we're, we're, we're kind of in the, the battle of our lives right now. Awesome. Uh, so a couple of folks um, had asked for some music and we don't have some time. We don't have time to get Daniel to play for us, but we'll have to do a jam together sometime. That, that would be fun. Uh, a little birdie did send me this photo, which I'm going to share for all of you right <laughs> now. Um, so you can see Daniel just rocking out on his guitar here. Um, Daniel, I'm sure you can guess who, who sent me that. Oh, so, yes, I um, know. He's, just <laughs> proud. He's proud of his new, uh, his new Les Paul. So, uh, yeah, he wanted me to play it and, uh, and so there it is for everybody to see. So, uh, yeah, we were playing a Led Zeppelin song at that time. <laughs> so anyway, um, thank you all for watching. Great audience tonight. Super engaged in the chat. Um, uh, we'll see you next month. Uh, we're going to be doing the uh, the expectation is July 11th since our normal date would fall on the July 4th holiday. So we'll see you on July 11th. Um, thanks again, everybody. Uh, pleasure to have you. And so let's just roll it out from here. Thank you.